Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, who, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me begin this again with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your precious word. Help us to love our Lord more fully, more deeply through this morning. We offer this time to you for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. So, you know, we're good Baptists, we're quiet, we don't actually talk to each other during the service, but it's a rhetorical question. Uh, who would you consider to be some of the top business leaders alive today? Start thinking in your head, who do you think? I'm guessing there'd be a lot of overlap, probably people we've all heard of, guys like Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, maybe, uh, uh, who's the Tesla guy? Elon Musk, SpaceX and Tesla. Um, this one's for you, Chandler. Bob Iger, Iger Disney executive chairman. Um, uh, if it was six months ago, I'm certainly, Jeff Bezos would have been on there before he retired. These are, are, are people we view as great leaders, and, and, and typically it's because they're wildly successful as leaders in their companies and their organizations. They're entrepreneurial, they're innovative, they're creative, they're brilliant. Uh, and being able to see what's going on in the world and being able to fill needs and in, 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 you know, market needs and production needs and whatever it might be, they're visionary. And so we view them as great leaders. But what's interesting is that in Jesus' school of leadership and management, which is what I'm calling our text this morning, none of those qualities are mentioned. When Jesus gives us his vision for leadership in his kingdom, what he cares about is none of those things that typically make people great leaders in our world. In fact, he contrasts it, the common assumptions about leadership that we have in the world with how leadership should be in his kingdom and his church and he's going to give us three leadership principles as primary in our text this morning, and they're going to be the outline for us. So the first principle is leading on level ground. Again, these are all about leadership in the church. Second principle is going to be serving before leading. And the third principle is going to be leading in suffering and perseverance. Now, before we jump into our text, quick, uh, just recap where we are contextually. Jesus is sharing his last meal on earth with his disciples. This is Thursday night in the Passion Week, which means later this night he'll be betrayed, and tomorrow, Friday, the next day, he'll be crucified. So this is his last meal he will eat in his earthly body, not his resurrected body. Um, he's just given his disciples the institution of the Lord's Supper, and here he's giving them some of his last thoughts. Again, Jesus knows what's coming. His disciples don't, but Jesus does. 
And uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and typically at the end of an interview in a podcast, they'll ask the person, so are there any last thoughts? And it's kind of their overarching what they care most about, what they, just one last thing they want to leave with their listeners, and this is what we're getting from Jesus. What's the last thing he wants his disciples to hear before he dies? Because again, the disciples, as Ephesians 2 tells us, will go on to be the foundation of the church, as the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles if the, foundation, if the foundation is rotten, the church will stumble. And so he's given these important, there's just a sense of urgency in what Jesus is trying to get to his disciples in this teaching. So this brings us to our first leadership principle, our first point, leading on level ground. Follow along as I read verses 24 to 26. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. Again, we're in Jesus' last meal, and once again, we find out that his disciples are still fighting over who is the most important. If you remember from however many months ago, this is not the first time they fought over this. In Luke 9, it says they were disputing the exact same question. Who is the greatest? And Jesus addressed it at that point by bringing a child and saying, the child is the greatest in his simplistic or in his, in his simple faith and trust and reliance upon God. But here they are again in Jesus' last meal and they're fighting over who's going to be the best. It might be as they're sitting down. Again, if you're sitting closer to Jesus, it's seen as a place of prominence. We don't know, but they're, they're fighting. And, and when you consider also that the Apostle John, in his account, describes that Jesus had washed their feet in the beginning of this meal and had looked at his disciples and said, you understand what I'm doing for you right now. And yet here they are in that same meal fighting over who's more important. At the end of the day, Christians, we can be real knuckleheads. Even the apostles could be real knuckleheads. And what a, a, a comfort is to remember again that John emphasized that Jesus loved this bunch to the end even in the midst of their knuckleheadedness. But this dispute provides the occasion for, again, Jesus' school of leadership and management. And he begins by contrasting how leadership should be in the church with how leadership operates in the world. This is verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. There's kind of two aspects Jesus is focusing on. Kings exercise lordship. Power in the world wants to exercise itself, it wants to extend itself. That's the natural bent of power and authority in the way the world works. So there's this famous quote by Lord Acton, he was a British politician about 200 years ago, where he said that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's just the way power works. When you have power, you want to control power, you want to have maximum control over whatever's happening. That's why companies are vicious in their, towards their competitors. And they will do everything they can legally to stamp out any competition. That's why politicians will, will, will become vicious when someone threatens their position of power. Power wants to extend itself. And that's why, again, the founders of our country are quite wise when they divided the powers among three branches because they understood that's the bent of the human heart to want to grow in power. This is how leadership, authority, and power works in the world. But again, Jesus says in verse 26, but not so among you. 
power wants to extend itself. But the second thing he calls out in verse 25 again is, is and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The idea is that's a title of distinction, of honor. Typically, those who are in power and authority in the world operate as if they are in a distinct class of their own. Historically, you had the aristocracy. There was actual class distinctions. In America, we don't have class distinctions, but there are distinctions. If you look at how Jeff Bezos lives, he may not be in a class of his own that's by birth, but he lives a different reality than any of us in this building. They're just a separate category. They're special. They are not one of us. Again, this is how power, leadership, authority works in the world. And so again, in verse 26, Jesus says, but not, he's like, the world may operate this way, my disciples, but it can't be this way in the church. It just can't. The church that is called after Jesus' name cannot operate in the same way. And instead, the first principle of leadership Jesus gives, again, is leading on level ground. And it's a command about status. It says the greatest must become as the youngest, and the one who leads is the one who serves. Now, when he says the greatest and the one who's leading, he's saying, look, those who have power, who have authority, who have influence, you must become as the youngest. Now, in our day, we idolize youth, and so everyone wants to become as if they're younger. We, we, we you know, do surgery on our body to make ourselves look younger, but before, when people were not quite as crazy as we are today, youth was seen as not a good thing. You were, you know, it's like you're immature, you don't have life experience. And so if you're the youngest, you had the lowest status. And so he's saying, look, the one who is great, who has authority, influence, status, you have to become as the youngest. And the one who leads has to become as the one who serves. We have to be on an equal playing ground if we want to serve in the church of Jesus Christ. The pastor is no more important than the youngest member of the church or the newest member. We lead on level ground. Now, why is this the case? Uh, this really appeals to us in our kind of Western sensibilities. We are a country that values equality, and so when we read Jesus breaking down hierarchies, we think, yes, I love that. Uh, but there are places in the world where this would be seen as disruptive to a created order, and history would not have been seen as, as always a good thing. Jesus doesn't say this because it sounds good. He says it because it's what the Bible teaches. One of the basic teachings of the Bible we find in Genesis 1.27, which says that God created man or created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Every human being is made in the image of God. The most important attribute about you is not your IQ, it's not your heritage, it's not what you do for a job, it's the fact that you are made in God's image. What sets us apart from the animal kingdom, again, is not our physical capacity, we're not the strongest, it's not our intellectual capacity, it's not our social capacity, it's that we are made in God's image, and we are all equally made in God's image. There is a radical equality at the basis of Scripture. But second, and this is all the New Testament is built on this basic truth, which is that we are saved by grace. We all equally approach as sinners the cross, and we're saved by grace. The king and the servant alike approaches the cross in the same way, and that's in humility and repentance. Again, there's a radical leveling effect of the gospel. 
And this is why Jesus teaches us, if you want to lead, if you want to be great, quote-unquote, in the kingdom of God, you must become as the youngest. You must become as the one who serves. We're all equal. We're all on the same playing field. We don't have different ranks of status or privilege or worth. So this brings us to a really, really, really important point. And I'm going to actually put it on the screen behind me. But any form of church leadership or practice that elevates leaders over followers in terms of status or prestige or worth is denying basic biblical principles. Let's say it again. Any form of church leadership or practice that elevates leaders over followers in terms of status or prestige or worth, I'm not saying they all have the same role, but in terms of worth, of status, it is denying basic biblical principles. I mean, again, Jesus says, this is how the world works but not so with you. It can't be how the church operates. Colin Hansen, who's, he's, I think, an editor for Gospel Coalition now, uh, when I was in college, coined the term the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement, which is, he was just, there's just this movement among young Christians of kind of rediscovering what we call the doctrines of grace, and you had guys in college reading like John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and these dead old writers and, and loving it, and there's a lot of good things that came out of it. I was very influenced by this movement. Uh, if, if you've been at all influenced by guys like John Piper or Matt Chandler or John MacArthur, like you've probably been influenced by the young, restless, and reformed movements, and there's been a lot of good things that come out of it a recovery of God's glory and holiness, uh, a, a, a re-emphasis of the, of the gospel of sheer grace towards sinners like you and me. But there's been a weakness that's always been present in it that's now coming out more and more, which is that it's, from the beginning, has revolved around these highly gifted, highly charismatic leaders. And it wasn't always the leader's fault, but thanks to things like book sales and conferences and social media, all of a sudden these leaders became celebrities. And this has been so destructive for the church. It's been destructive for these leaders. And it's been destructive for future leaders. Again, because, you know, I grew up wanting to be John Piper. And so what does success in ministry look like? Well, it looks like you write books that lots of people read and you speak at packed out conferences and, 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 you, and you lead a church of 4,000 people. That's not pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry has nothing to do. Leadership in the church has nothing to do with book sales platforms or any of that stuff. As I was uh, writing this, I was was just remembering my own calling to ministry, and it was a very convoluted process. Um, But for me, uh, first came a desire to study. I just wanted to go to seminary. Then came a desire to preach. And then last came a desire to actually love people. But what I found in my, you know, limited experience in ministry is what has been most sacred to me has not been the moments of public ministry, although I love preaching and I think it is foundational. It's been the moments of private ministry when I've sat with people in the hospital or at a funeral or just getting coffee and someone entrusts something from them to you and, and, and you're just, that's when I want to remove my shoes and I think, God, there's no other place I'd rather be. That's pastoral ministry. That's the leadership that God calls his, his church to. We lead on level ground. If we are all made in the image of God, we are all our sinners who are saved by grace and of equal worth. That's the first point. First, leadership principles. We lead on level ground. The second leadership principle is serving 
before leading. Verse 27, follow along with me. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now again, he keeps coming back to this contrast in verse 25. The way that worldly power works is power wants to extend itself, wants to grow in power, wants to continue to control and have more and more power. You exercise your power to gain more power. But Jesus exercised his power, his far greater power, to serve. He gives this rhetorical question. Look, if, if you know, at a place where there's someone reclining at table who's, who's eating a meal, who's more important? Who's greater? The one who's eating the meal or the one who's serving them? And it's like, well, of course, the one who's eating the meal, they're the, you know, the, the reason that meal's happening, the one who's serving them is not the more important one. But then Jesus flips it all in his head because he says, look, me, who am the greatest, I am among you as one who serves not that Jesus was a literal servant, but that every part of his life was done in service to his Father in heaven and service to people. The, the, the Philippians passage we read in chapters 2, is, this is what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, the Lord of life, the Alpha the one through whom and for whom all things were created. When he came, he was a servant in all that he did. Jesus says, who's greater? But I am among you as a servant. Again, worldly leaders use their power to rule, to dominate, to exercise their lordship, but Jesus used his far greater power to serve. And this brings us to another absolutely important point, which is that at least in this text, and I would argue throughout the Bible, Jesus ties leadership in the church more closely to service than he does to power and authority. He ties leadership in the church more closely to the idea of service than the idea of power and authority. Leaders in the church are not leaders who serve, they're servant leaders. And this is an important distinction. A leader who serves means they are a leader first. That's what's front. And they also happen to serve in some ways. A servant leader means you're first a servant and then you lead in some ways. Really, really important distinction because if we over-prioritize authority when considering church leadership, if we put the leadership first, it's going to lead towards an authoritarian form of leadership. I think, and I think this has happened in a lot of our churches. Again, we think of our Southern Baptist the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Circle, I think we see this. I think one of the reasons it's been an unfortunate consequence of a lot of the debates over gender roles because so much of it has boiled down to authority. Who has authority to do what, which, when, where, and how? And they're good debates to have. They need to be had, but it's reduced leadership to just questions of, well, who's got the authority? But Jesus ties leadership more to service into authority, and again, if, if we front the authority first, then the leadership turns in a very authoritarian, micromanaging, controlling direction. And I think this, I, I've, I've seen this in churches. I've heard stories of pastors. Uh, there's a big difference between a pastor giving advice when asked and trying to share wisdom, and a pastor giving a decisive, thus shall it be. And I've heard stories of, of like pastors telling people what kind of jobs they could have. I'm not talking about, like, you can't be a drug dealer job. 
I personally have been told by an elder what kind of job my wife could have or what you can post on social media, or how you can talk about the church, or whether you can or should go to grad school. These are very authoritarian types of leadership. And I'm not talking about fringe churches here, guys. It's a problem in our churches. And I think part of the reason is because we have a tied authority to leadership before we have service. Again, when we put authority first, pastors don't shepherd, they micromanage. And as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, a pastor is called to serve, never to lord. Um, if, you're inter- if you're thinking about pastoral ministry, remember, we are shepherds. We are not kings. So that's our second point, serving before leading. And I, I should have said this in the beginning. Jesus is giving this teaching to his leaders, his apostles, but of course this applies to every Christian. Every Christian we're called to lead, or sorry, to serve before we're called to any kind of leadership or any kind of anything else. Again, that's the second point. We serve before we lead. We are servant leaders. The third point is leading in suffering and perseverance. Again, follow along as I read verses 28 to 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus commends his disciples. Uh, I think Judas has probably left by the time Jesus says this. Uh, and, and I think it's Mark. It says that Judas leaves when Jesus confronts him, saying, I know you're going to betray me. And that has already happened. So I think Judas is not here. Plus, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, I commend you for sticking with me when one of them is going to betray him. So I think he's talking about his 11 disciples. He's like, you guys have stuck with me. When the religious leadership began to sour on Jesus, they stuck with Jesus. When the crowds abandoned him in John 6, they can't handle Jesus' teachings. Peter speaks for them all. He says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In, in the exhausting, overwhelming pace of ministry that Jesus went on, they stuck with him. And so he commends them. And he promises them a reward. And this is a unique apostolic reward. Again, when we're thinking, how does this apply to us? We first have to understand, this is a, again, this is a reward that's unique for the apostles. And he says, I'm going to assign you a kingdom. And that's a little bit confusing. But kingdom can mean either a, 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 an individual kind of like kingdom, we think, of like a geographic area, or can refer to like a rule, like a dominion. And what I think is going on here is Jesus is saying, look, when Jesus came, his life was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had come near in the life and person of Jesus. He's going back to the Father after the resurrection and his ascension, but the kingdom will continue to advance through these apostles. They're going to continue the mission of the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'm giving you the kingdom. Because again, they're going to be the foundation of the church. They're going to write the New Testament, which is why this is a unique apostolic reward. And then they're going to judge Israel, whether that refers to an actual ethnic Israel or the new Israel. I don't know. It doesn't actually play into what Jesus is getting at in this text. But again, this, this third principle of true leadership is that true leadership and Christian discipleship is seen in perseverance in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. Again, here, and, and, and before I jump into that, I just want to give a side note of grace to struggling sinners. But this is right after the disciples had been like one-upping each other 
and argument who is the greatest after Jesus has given them the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body broken, and this is my blood shed. And then they're like, who's greater? And then Jesus commends them and says, you stuck with me. It doesn't just give them a consolation prize. It's like, I'm going to reward you beyond what you can imagine. And this is such grace for weary sinners because there's many times when who we want to be and who we are are just very separate. Uh, I mean, I'll be, I'll be vulnerable with you. The pastor that I want to be, I am so far from being. As I've been studying this text and this view of leadership, and it's beautiful. And it's just like, I'm so far. I'm, in so many ways, I'm so far from being who the pastor that I want to be, that Christ calls me to be, and we can get discouraged and can want to give up. But it's just helpful to remember what Jesus asks us is just simply not to stop. He says, don't give up. Don't lay down. Keep striving. And you'll be rewarded beyond what you can imagine. There's grace for weary sinners in this passage. But again, getting back to the leadership principle, leadership is seen in, in perseverance. And he contrasts it with, again, worldly leadership. If you think back to those business leaders we talked about in the introduction, again, what, what they're most known for is just being highly successful, and that's why we care about them. But what Jesus cares about, oh, and, and let me, and sometimes you can think similarly in the church. You know, again, Jeff Bezos, we know him because Amazon's huge. It's the largest web hosting company in the world, Amazon Web Services, and of course, Amazon retail marketing, all, internet marketing, all that stuff. But sometimes we can begin to think similarly about the church. So I, I'm going to give you a challenge. Any church conference, it doesn't matter denomination, it doesn't matter theological tribe, it doesn't matter if this is like health and wealth, prosperity guys, or like the most nerdiest reformed guys. The pastors who are headlining those conferences pastor churches that are many times the size of the median church in America. According to recent surveys, the median size church in America is 65. We're almost there. We're average. <laughs> Woo. But these pastors, again, they're pastoring, you know, even if it's like a small church, 200 people, that's four times the median size. Why do we want them to speak? Because we want to hear from quote-unquote successful pastors. Because again, we, we, we sometimes think the same way the world does. And, and here, let's just be clear, pastoring a church, pastoring a big church is not a bad thing. The first church in Acts was huge. It was thousands. It's just that it says nothing about your leadership. It doesn't say anything about what Christ cares about leadership. What is great leadership to Jesus? It's not figuring out how to fill a room. It's perseverance through suffering. And so exhibit A, for your consideration of what great leadership, great discipleship looks like, I want you to consider Elizabeth Elliot. If you're not familiar with who she was, uh, she was the wife of Jim Elliott, and they were missionaries in South America in the 1950s. I also went to Wheaton College, my alma mater, so obviously I'm biased. Uh, and in, in great tragedy, Jim Elliott was massacred by the very tribe they were trying to reach the first time they had face-to-face -face contact with them. But the reason we know Elizabeth Elliott is because she then went back to that same tribe, and God did an incredible work, and many in that tribe trusted in Christ including some of the men who had murdered her husband. And there's this clip, you can find it, I encourage you, it's, it's a YouTube clip, it's from the Urbana Missions Conference of 1996, just Google search Urbana 96, Elizabeth Elliot. It is, it is worth watching, it's an eight minute clip, 
But it's Elizabeth Elliot, she begins talking about a memory of after God had done this great work in this village, many had come to Christ, and, and she's in that village, and she's in a hut, it's at night, she's trying to sleep, but she can't sleep, because one of the men who had murdered her husband was loudly chanting a praise to Jesus in his own hut, and it was keeping her awake. And so she's, and this leads into this whole long reflection on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, which is that great passage on treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, and we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed and perplexed, but not driven to despair, or persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you right now, if you re- watch that clip, Elizabeth Elliot reads her talk, like zero points in rhetoric, and she reads it in a monotone. But I've watched it seven times, and every time I, I tear up, and I'm like fired up a- after that. It's just, I mean, because the authority in her words as one who has persevered through suffering and has remained obedient to her Lord, I mean, it just, poof. that's the kind of leadership that matters to Jesus. Leadership that, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, perseveres. It's what Jesus values, and it's what we should value. You know, we have members in this church who suffered for decades from chronic pain, and yet every week, they're here in church, joyful to be in the presence of God's people. We have members who carry great grief Every time they come, and yet they smile. So the discipleship that Jesus cares about. It's one of the reasons I love being at this church. It's the leadership and the discipleship that pleases our Lord. So to conclude, what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples is leadership in the church, discipleship in general, it has to look different than how it looks in the world. And the reason for that at the end of the day is because we value different things. The sinful heart wants to make much of itself, and so power tends to extend itself. But the heart that's been renewed by the grace of Jesus Christ just wants to make much of Jesus. The sinful heart wants to control and to dominate and to lord, but the heart that has been renewed by grace wants to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in self-sacrifice, in humility, in service. Will we as a church always get this right? Well, of course not. Of course we won't. There'll be times when we draw more from worldly understandings of leadership than from our Lord. But the important thing is that we don't give up. We persevere. Whether it's persevering in personal holiness, and again, there's been, you know, the same sin pattern, you're still struggling with it, the importance is you don't give up. Maybe there's been parts of the church that have just been disillusioning for you, and it's like, I don't even want to be part of this anymore. The important thing is we don't give up. We persevere because we know that Christ will use our perseverance for his purposes. It will never go to waste. And the reward that we will receive when we persevere to the end will be worth any suffering, any hardship we may have experienced to get us there. Let's pray. Jesus, you have given us what you want from us, from our leadership, from our own very hearts. 
Oh, may it resonate within us. May you make us a people who look like this. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your holy name we pray. Amen.